Welcome to Detectives by the Decade. This is the podcast that looks at the detectives, the scientists, and the cases that gave us forensics as we know it today. I'm Christy Baxter. I'm doing my best to keep this podcast in chronological order by the date that a crime was committed, but we may find it necessary to jump around a bit from time to time. Today is one of those cases. We're going to have to hop both before and after the time period of the previous episode. These are cases that aren't quite long enough for a full episode, but they're interesting stories that have an important place in the history of forensic science, so I'm packing them all together. Mini case number one, once bitten, twice shy. So, If we're talking about forensics, of course we can't only talk about the successes. Learning from failure and from mistakes is just as important as, if not more important than, furthering discoveries through victories. And forensics has a lot of failures and a ton of mistakes. One area of forensic science that we might think about throwing into the mistake category is bite mark comparison. And shockingly, the first use of bite mark comparison in the courtroom was during another huge mistake, the Salem Witch Trials. Reverend George Burroughs was born around 1650, either in England or in Massachusetts or possibly Virginia. In 1670, he graduated from Harvard College. He both snagged distinguished honors with that degree and was pretty good at sports. What, what kind of sports did they play in 1670? I'm, I'm imagining something that involves kicking a wooden cup, and I don't know why. In 1673, he and his first wife, Hannah Fisher, married. They moved to Falmouth, Maine, and he was the pastor there for two years until a Wabanaki raid sent the surviving townspeople fleeing. He spent some time in Salisbury, Massachusetts as minister until 1680. Then he moved to the Salem Village Church. There were lots of problems in Salem at the time. You had feuds and disputes galore, and the village wasn't so great with paying its ministers. Several of them also had some simmering hostility toward the new minister as they liked the last guy better who left largely because they didn't pay him. Sensing logic, not a strong suit in the Puritan world. The lack of pay issue was so bad that when Hannah died in 1681, the Reverend George Burroughs had to borrow money to pay for her funeral. They had had nine children between 1673 and 1681, and three of them survived, so he still had some mouths to feed as well. He remarried pretty quickly. A lot of issues in the area stemmed from the division between Salem Village and Salem Town. Just as a quick side note, for a good long-form dive into the Salem Witch Trials and all the different issues that contributed to that, listen to Aaron Mankey's Unobscured Podcast Series 1, There is so much that I had no idea about, and I've even, you know, read books about the trials. So, just a recommendation from me to you. But eventually, Burroughs was like, screw this, 
this place is toxic. Y'all are messed up. I'm going to bolt. And the man he'd borrowed the money for the funeral from, John Putnam, had him arrested for failure to repay a debt. That issue did manage to get resolved without too much difficulty, but it's just a hint of the neighbor-against-neighbor crap that Salem was rife with. Not only that, but stories like that can get twisted very easily, and that issue likely gave some ammunition to those who didn't like him already. His second wife died sometime in this period, and he remarried again. Then he moved to Wells, Maine, around 65 miles away, and he preaches there from 1690 until 1692, which is when everything just went all to hell. On April 30th, 1692, George Burroughs is named as one of six people charged with witchcraft. Six girls in Salem accuse him of various things like lifting super heavy stuff, which they called extraordinary lifting, uh, not baptizing his children, not taking communion, and using witchcraft to kill his wives, as well as the wife and child of the minister who replaced him at Salem. They also didn't have a good view of the mother and infant mortality rate going on there if they had to blame witchcraft. George Burroughs did say that only his elder child was baptized, and he admitted he couldn't recall the last time he took communion, but he was a very secretive and private guy, which that likely didn't help. Several of the girls had bite marks on their bodies, and at the trial, the powers that be forced Burroughs' mouth open and compared his teeth with the marks on the girls. This was the first documented case of bite mark evidence in American courts. Thirty people testified against him at the trial. Several of the afflicted girls who testified against him had instances of nearly identical phrasing in their testimony as found in the transcripts. Professor Peter Grund of the University of Kansas recently performed a handwriting analysis on the transcripts and found that the depositions were written by Thomas Putnam, father of one of the accusing girls. He also used similar wording in his own testimony. And now that I think about it, and it's really only just coming to me now, we now have our first instance of question document examination, which is something we'll be looking at down the line. So, yay! Something for which we will not say yay is that Burroughs was found guilty of witchcraft on August 2nd, 1692. Despite a petition in his favor from 35 Salem Village citizens, he was taken in a cart to Gallows Hill on August 19th. He did give a speech in which he recited the Lord's Prayer. Many believed that a real witch couldn't do that, and so that kind of threw the crowd off. Nevertheless, he was hanged on the same day as several other accused witches. Sometimes justice takes a long time to come around and is uh, somewhat meaningless when it does. In this case, it didn't take too long, 1711, for the Massachusetts government to declare him innocent, as well as all the others 
accused in the witch trials, it still feels a little hollow, though. His heirs were compensated, so there is that. We might disagree on many things as modern human beings, but a lot of us can find common ground in the shared certainty that, if someone was accused of witchcraft, there was a good chance that they were just a normal person caught up in politics or feuds or vengeance. In short, the very first documented use of bite mark comparison in the courtroom was, in fact, absolute malarkey. As were the charges it aimed to prove. Mini case number two. Easy as A, B, A, B. A man is loading a gun. It's the 17th century, though, so take that modern image you just cooked up and make a few revisions. He's loading a gun, and so first he puts some gunpowder in the barrel. Then he adds a lead ball, and that's followed by wadding, which is used to secure the gunpowder and the pellet. The man needs something to act as wadding, so he pats his pockets for any spare sheet of paper. Ah, there it is, part of a ballad sheet. He tears off a corner, balls it up, and shoves it into the barrel. Then he puts the ballad sheet back in his pocket. Now, let's move on down the road a bit. It's late January, 1784. Edward Culshaw, a 50-year-old carpenter in Ditton, Lancashire, is 50 years old, and he's just walking from Liverpool. However, he's being followed by one John Toms, age 20, who is a saddler. We don't know all of what happened, but we do know that at some point, someone shot Culshaw in the back of the head with a horse pistol. Said person stole the dead man's watch and some pence, then put the pistol under Culshaw's body. The body was found fairly quickly, and when police took the body to a surgeon for an autopsy, the surgeon discovered that the bullet had gone through the back of the head and out the forehead. And in examining the wound, he found both the lead ball and the wadding used to keep it in place. It appears to be part of a ballad sheet. He preserves the wadding, and it's about to come in real handy. That very night, John Toms is picked up. He is searched, and what do they come up with? A scrap of a ballad sheet. And it just so happens to match up with the wadding found in Culshaw's wound. On March 26, 1784, John Toms is tried before Judge Wills, and he is found guilty of willful murder. He was executed the following Monday, just three days later, and his body was then given to the surgeons for dissection. This is one of the earlier cases where we have physical evidence tying the murderer to the actual crime as well as the first murder ever solved with forensic ballistics. Mini case number three, grit your teeth. 
General Joseph Warren is one of those figures from America's past that her own citizens likely don't know much or anything about. But if you live in one of 14 states that have a county named after him, or in one of the 39 towns or townships bearing his name, you may have at least passed by a statue of him. He plays an important part in America's history, and oddly enough, in forensic science history, too. General Joseph Warren was a physician, and the cause of revolution just got him all fired up. He was actually the one who enlisted Paul Revere and William Dawes to warn Concord, Massachusetts, and the rebel leaders there that the British were, in fact, coming. Revere didn't actually say those words, as was attributed to him. He didn't even make it to Concord, but that's a whole other story. In June 1775, Warren was only 34 years old when he was given the commission of Major General in the U.S. militia as war was ramping up. A few days later, he went to the Battle of Bunker Hill and asked General Israel Putnam to direct him to wherever the fighting would be the thickest. He was asked to take command, but he refused, as he didn't feel he had as much experience as those doing the asking. They were the underdogs, with the enemy having better numbers, so Warren was, you know, giving locker room speeches to keep morale up. The revolutionaries ran out of ammunition, but still he stayed trying to make sure that all who could escape did. And then he took a musket ball to the head from a British officer. Not only that, but the British ripped off his clothing and started bayonetting him until his mangled body couldn't be identified, then threw him in a shallow grave with another revolutionary. One British officer later said, I stuffed the scoundrel with another rebel into one hole, and there he be, and his seditious principles may remain. And then, two days later, another British officer, Lieutenant Drew, went back to the hill, dug General Warren's body up, spat in his face, stomped his midsection, and finally, for good measure, chopped off his head. The phrase, quote, committed every act of violence upon his body, end quote, followed a description of all those acts of violence, so you'll just have to use your imagination to fill in that particular blank. Also, um, any unsolved murders from around that time period? Because that dude had issues. So you would think that, with all the damage done to the body, surely Warren never had a proper burial. How could anyone ever truly identify him? Paul Revere, that's how. Ten months after the Battle of Bunker Hill, Warren's brothers went to the battle site and exhumed his body. Paul Revere, who joined them, managed to positively identify the walrus tooth he'd placed in the general's mouth prior to the war. So General Joseph Warren got the burial his family wanted for him thanks to forensic dentistry. You might say it was revolutionary. Here's what Warren left behind. 
He had four children from his first marriage and was engaged to be remarried. His death was said to be equal to the deaths of 500 men. So inspiring to the revolutionaries was his martyrdom. And a side note, as for all those places named after him, in the northwest corner of Pennsylvania, there's a place called Warren County. In that county are both the city and borough of Warren. And that's where your humble host was born and bred. Mini case number four, good impressions. It's autumn 1786, and a young woman named Elizabeth Hunan lived with her parents in Kirkudbright, Scotland. One day, the parents went out to harvest and left their daughter home alone. When they came home around noon, they found her. She'd been murdered, and her throat had been cut. The surgeons looked at the wound and determined that the weapon must have been held in the left hand of the perpetrator. The ground around the cottage was searched and footprints were found in the nearby marsh. So investigators determined that the person had been running due to the depth of the impressions. They measured the prints and took an impression of them. So investigators determined the person had been running due to the depths of the footprints. They measured the prints and took an impression of them. Now, I would like to interrupt myself here. The sources state that it's an impression, and I'm assuming, as many have, that we're referring to a plaster cast or something similar. We have drawings that they made of the footprints, and it's possible that casting did not occur and that people have made a false assumption based on the word impression of the shoe print. One way or the other, they recorded the shape and characteristics of the shoes, which included that the soles had been newly mended, and they had iron nails in them, which was common in that place and time. Drops of blood were found at intervals along the track, as well as a spot where it appeared someone had been running on the stepping stones, but misplaced a step, ending up with one leg in the mire. So he would have had one leg wet to about the knee. Elizabeth Hunan, upon examination, was found to be pregnant, and the identity of the father was as much a mystery as that of the murderer. The Stuart Depute, or Sheriff, Alexander Gordon, decided to go to the funeral figuring that the murderer would go also so as not to rouse suspicion. After the burial, Gordon gathered all 60 men who had attended and had them remove their shoes. Those shoes were then measured. There did seem to be a match initially. The parish schoolmaster's shoes seemed to match up. So the initial suspicion was that he had an affair with Hunan and fathered the child, then killed her to save his reputation. But after closer examination, it was found that the shoe actually wasn't a perfect fit with his. His shoe had a pointed tip and the murderer's shoe was rounded. Then they found a perfect match. Quote, In dimensions, shape of the foot, form of the sole, apparently newly mended, and the number and position of the knobs. 
one William Richardson's shoes matched the shoe print. The authorities asked for his alibi for the murder, and he said he had been working all day. His boss concurred, as did his co-workers, so they dropped the matter. A few days later, something happened. It's always referred vaguely in the notes as something. And they put Richardson in jail. That's when everything started piling up. He was, in fact, left-handed, just as the surgeon had said the perpetrator was. He actually hadn't been at work all day. For about half an hour, he had left to go to the Smith shop for some item that he really didn't have a need for. The Smith's shop was en route to the murder scene. A neighbor of the victim spotted Richardson and recognized him right around the time of the murder as well as the time he was absent from work. This neighbor saw him running towards the cottage from about 100 yards away, but she did not see him leave. When he returned to his co-workers after being gone longer than he told them to expect, and also with an oddly wet stocking, he's like, oh, I was gathering nuts in the woods, and also I stepped into the marsh by accident. And one of his co-workers was like, were you drunk? There are, there are stepping stones in the marsh. They're, they're there to be stepped on. This is not hard. Now, the times all lined up. So, they started looking for more evidence. They searched his home and found stockings hidden in the thatch. Dirty, blood-stained stockings. Of course, Richardson had a new story. He says, well... I had a nosebleed. Okay, I get that he's desperate, but the amount of sense that that makes is zero. Go ahead. Try to wipe your nose or stop a nosebleed with your calf. I'll wait. All right, are you done looking like an idiot now? That story got busted to hell anyway, as people told the investigators that Richardson was wearing different stockings the day of the nosebleed. Boy. Memories on these people. Then he said, Oh, yeah, that's right. I was actually bleeding a horse. This was back when they believed, and I'm not kidding, that many illnesses were caused by having too much blood. So you had to get rid of some to balance things out. From some cursory research, it appears that horses were the only other animals to which this very logical biological rule was applied. But when presented with this information, his co-workers were like, nope, nope, nope. He was standing all the way over there when we bled the horse, and there's no way he could have gotten blood on him from that distance. His co-workers are not doing him any favors. The mud on his stockings looks to correspond to that of the mire around the cottage. And surprise, here we have an instance of trace evidence and some very primitive forensic biology. They talk to the shoemaker, and guess who had his shoes mended recently? The authorities showed the shoemaker Richardson's shoes, and he's like, yep, that's my work. And finally, 
some information comes out about Richardson's relationship with the victim, who, by the way, was considered, quote, of weak intellect, end quote, which likely meant she had some kind of intellectual disability. I have some very choice words for this guy, and my mother would approve of exactly zero of them. Richardson had been seen in the woods with Hunan, and, as Chambers' Edinburgh Journal puts it, quote, in circumstances that led to a suspicion that he had had criminal conversation with her, end quote. Euphemisms everywhere. Criminal conversation is likely intercourse. So apparently, after being seen with Hunan, Richardson was teased about it, which led to him being embarrassed. There was one conflicting bit of evidence brought up regarding a boat landing near the murder victim's house sometime around the murder, but that was pretty much it. There was no evidence that any of the occupants of that boat did it, and nothing missing from the cottage or any of the surrounding homes that might indicate a rash of burglaries. Richardson was found guilty. Afterward, he confessed that, yep, it was exactly as the investigator suspected. Quote, he was the murderer and said it was to hide his shame in having paid attentions to a woman of weak intellect. End quote. I'd like to dispute who has the weak intellect here, buddy, if you think murdering the girl you fooled around with would be the solution to all your problems. He also told them where to find the knife, and sure enough, it was both exactly where he said and nice and bloody. Because Mr. Strong Intellect over here doesn't have the sense to wipe the damn blood off. He was hanged in the spring of 1787. Now, in the Chambers Edinburgh Journal, published in 1833, there is a lengthy description from which much of this story was derived. In that story, the authors state that this was one of the first cases of circumstantial evidence. Quote, As the preferable evidence of two witnesses, or even one witness, can seldom be obtained in these painful cases, the law allows, as the next best, evidence founded on circumstances, when such circumstances are capable of producing the same, or nearly the same, conviction on the mind, as would be produced by direct testimony. End quote. Now, this is sort of similar to today's issues with the CSI effect, in which juries expect DNA evidence as a matter of course, except that back then, the expectation was that surely someone had seen the crime occur. And if not, surely someone could lie about it, right? But we'll see a slow turning over the centuries as crime scene evidence comes to be more respected, and eventually... While eyewitness testimony is still considered valuable, we at least acknowledge that the human memory is incredibly fallible. And now, we tend to believe physical evidence over a person when it comes to determining guilt or innocence, or even just determining whether to charge a suspect. 
Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that little smattering of cases. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. New episodes drop every Thursday. Detectives by the Decade is written, hosted, and produced by me, Christy Baxter. Music by Kevin McLeod. Voice acting by the epic Scott Mort and fascinating Amber Gaunt. If you don't already, go check out my other podcast, Old Timey Crimey, where I and my co-hosts Amber and Scott dive into historical crime, but in a much more conversational and sometimes swear-wordy manner than is done here. I'm Christy Baxter. Thanks for listening to Detectives by the Decade. My sources for this episode are Silent Witnesses, the often gruesome but always fascinating History of Forensic Science by Nigel McCurry, Irrefutable Evidence, a History of Forensic Science by Michael Curland, William and Robert Chambers in the Chambers Edinburgh Journal, Dwayne S. Hildebrand, International Association for Identification, Iowa Division, William J. Bodziak, Forensic Footwear Evidence, Detection, Recovery, and Examination, Bradley Balco on the Washington Post, Wikipedia, Joan Johnson Lewis on ThoughtCo, Barbara J. Starmans on The Social Historian, and The Leeds Intelligencer. British, okay. I stuffed a scoundrel. Oh, God, that's more of a, that's more of Australian, isn't it?